This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors, the podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And I'm Sophie Robinson. And today we are talking something old, something new and something fabulous off the telly. (laughs) Yes, well, well. Excitingly, though, we have an interview with Drew Pritchard, architectural antiques dealer and star of Salvage Hunters, who will be revealing all on the essential subject of vintage. Yeah, something old, do you see? Uh-huh. And the something new is the latest, soon to be bestseller from none other than my wonderful co host. We will be talking to Kate Watson Smythe about her new book. Oh, I see where you're going now. Brilliant. And the something fabulous off the telly is, of course, the new series of Interior Design Masters featuring my wonderful co-host, what's her name? Sophie something. (laughs) Sophie. Plus a very interesting bunch of design hopefuls. And uh, no spoilers, we promise. So uh, let's kick off with that. So I love the fact that you turn up on television with, you know, the former editor of Elle Decoration and a long-standing television presenter, Alan Carr, and there you are in your T-shirt going, Queen, I'm the Queen, that's me. I was like, oh, right, I see how this is going to play out. Did you think that was a bit strong? Do you think I was sending out subliminal messages? I don't think they were very subliminal. (laughs) Oh, I know. I love my Kemi Telford t-shirt. I just had to wear it. And I did feel like a queen. It was lovely to be back on the box. And like you said, in my uh, judgy role, there's nothing more satisfying than turning up and just slagging off everybody's hard work, quite frankly. (laughs) I was just going to say, nothing like turning up in a fabulous outfit and being incredibly rude to everybody. Yes. Joking aside, it is obviously it's such a privilege and it's hugely humbling because I don't even know whether the TV show can really, really get across the extraordinary challenge that these amateur designers are up against. Because, you know, in the world of interior design, we take our time, we have meetings, we plan, we pull our team together, we even meet the client. I mean, how extraordinary. (laughs) These guys get a written brief, a set of photographs, they never meet their client, they get one week to design it, prep it, source it, bring everything together, get it in the van, get it on site, and then just two days to execute it. Not only that, they've got Alan Carr butting in every five minutes and a camera in their face. It's quite, quite extraordinary. So I hold my hands up, actually, and say they are 
amazing, those contestants. And I think there's always that sort of thing that comes back to it, isn't it? That critics will always say, oh, it's not like interior design. Well, no, because it's telly. You know, it's <laughs> it's one thing to do a bit of baking on the telly, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of all the cookery programmes, but, you know, that is something that you can, you can bake a cake in an hour. Yes. And it's an entirely different thing, and I think it's, it's a really interesting dilemma because, obviously, we are even more interested in interiors now than we were a year ago. We're all paying more attention to our homes and what they look like. So it's a kind of no-brainer to try and put that on the telly. But it is really difficult to translate it because, you know, a lot of it is literally watching paint dry um, <laughs> and you can't necessarily have realistic budgets and you've got to bring in that game show element of Jeopardy, haven't you? Which again, well, isn't, you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're right, Kate. You know, essentially the TV company's interest is creating entertainment for people to enjoy at home. And that can cause lots of frustrations, not just for the interior design community, but also for the poor designers who are like yeah. on screen, you know, doing this. And actually someone sent me a DM after the show and said, oh, I don't think you judge them harshly enough on the <gasps> finesse and the finish. And I said, no, actually I disagree because, you know, the... Obviously, in a professional capacity, the, the finish and the finesse is everything. But when you've got a telly schedule, which I'm going to be honest, is pretty unrealistic. You know, sometimes those things don't get finished in time for the reveal. They might get finished with snagging afterwards, but the crew are there. They have to get their shots. And so when you see it all being a mad rush on telly, it's because of that reason. <laughs> There was one episode with without wanting to do any spoilers, which involved a curved arch leading through to a different part of a room. And I actually thought, you know what, that's a clever idea and it works really well. But in the event, it was quite badly executed. And that was, I think, the time pressure of the trades who were on set. Um, yes. And maybe it was an idea that was overambitious. But I thought, actually, it's not fair to judge on that because it was a clever idea. And had he had a bit longer, yeah. would have been able to have been done fine. So it is, yeah. it's difficult. It's difficult. And for that reason, it these sorts of shows are difficult to judge because you have to take that into consideration. But at the same time, you can't be too lenient because if a designer has been too ambitious within the timescale, then that's a time management and a project management issue as well, isn't there? So it is really difficult to, to get that balance right. It's also really important as a judge to try and be as subjective as possible as well and not let your own tastes or your own you know, personal preferences play in so much because we've got to, first of all, look at whether what the designer's done has fulfilled the brief because sometimes they can go off on a tangent and do what they like rather than what the client wanted them to do. So we've got to hold them account to that. And then also judge them against what are kind of the, what are the rules of great design really? You know, have they hit those different parameters. And then the final thing actually is kind of like the little magic dust. And maybe this is the thing that's hardest for the viewer to grasp at all. And that is actually, how do I feel in this space? You know, is this a lovely room to be in? And sometimes you can't judge a room until you actually walk into it and you feel the effects of that layout and the pattern and the colour and everything and how it does really come together and make you feel. I think, yeah, that's a really valid point. But, you know, all issues of being fair and balanced and, you know, proper interior designing aside, I'm moving on from that. I want some BTS gossip. <laughs> Tell us about behind the scenes. I mean, is it so? Is it chaos? Is everybody shouting? Are people crying? I'm guessing oh, it's, it's not a well-oiled machine. It's very annoying for the producers because all the contestants this year annoyingly get on really, really well. <laughs> Oh, do they? Really nice to one another and they're all the best of friends. <laughs> 
Um, and they're all being really supportive. It is really lovely. I think we've got some great characters in the show this year, haven't we? I mean, I am just loving the complete romance that's emerging between Paul and Siobhan. Oh, the yes. romance being their love of maximalist interiors. You know, they are just completely firing off each other in terms of pushing the envelope and just going bolder and braver and more outrageous every week. What I wanted to ask, so for example, the episode we've just seen, which you were on, was Beach Huts. And there was the most incredible storm with huge waves and wind. Now, is there sort of capacity for the producers to go, do you know what, we're going to have to stop the clock because we can't dry the paint in this rain and, you know, it's all falling down and we need to shelter. You know, that's quite extreme circumstances. So are you able to sort of stop (laughs) filming till the storm passes or do you just have to crack on and go, well, your paint's wet, not entirely your fault. You know, Hurricane Gareth blew in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the latter, the latter, definitely. Yeah, absolutely, because these are big productions. There's a lot of people on site and you have your slot so they have two days to do the build and the decoration and everything and I think on the first day Alan's there and then me and Michelle arrive and then on the final day they're in the studio so there's no putting it off till next week so you've just got to work with it's an absolute juggernaut because the next week they're working on the next design I mean they're literally going back to back to back one design then if they get through then they're into straight into the next design so there really is no delaying anything. And you're right. I mean, interiors luckily tends to be quite controlled in terms of weathers because it's an indoor sport. But you're right. Beach huts opened up a whole new challenge. I mean, what were the odds of a storm like that on the beach hut week? Yeah, it was. I got absolutely drenched. It was so hilarious. I rocked up in my really fabulous, jazzy, multicoloured checked, I'm going to use the term lightly, rain mac. And then there was Michelle in some kind of like Nordic, she was in a proper. She weather. was in the Gore-Tex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was in the Gore-Tex and layers, and all of this. I was like, mm, maybe she knows something I don't, and I just got absolutely soaked to the skin. <laughs> 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 I was freezing. Anyway, I did it all for the glamour of telly. I think the thing to remember is it's entertainment. You know, as much as it's nice to see if there are any tips and ideas, and I've certainly sort of taken away that notion of trying to hit the brief and who are you designing for and the sort of practical elements. But ultimately, this is not a free interior design course. It's telly. And it's yeah, entertainment it is, but then, but and some treat it as great, such. There's some great ideas and inspiration yeah, to be gleaned. Definitely. I mean, you know, even myself, who's been in this industry 25 years, I have never seen a beach hut designed like a Hawaiian tiki hut as the way Siobhan <laughs> created that thing yeah. in my life. I mean, it never, ever stops to surprise me. And I think that's what's so exciting when you see amateur talent coming through because they think outside the box. You know, Charlotte is a designer who comes from a textile background. She's incredibly artistic. She creates all these amazing finishes and patterns and textures that I've never seen before. So I think the innovation that gets showcased just quite often through the designer's complete naivety more than anything. You know, these aren't tried and tested jaded designers. This is young, fresh blood. I mean, you know, you've got Siobhan there who works in the NHS in admin, you know, and I just love the fact that she's got this kind of alter ego, (laughs) which is this amazing multicoloured wig wearing 
maximalist and she's just unearthed this incredible talent that perhaps would never have been untapped if it wasn't for shows like this. And I think someone said, which I thought was interesting, it might have been Michaela who said that, you know, before coming on the show, if she wanted a new piece of furniture, she would go and buy a new piece of furniture Mm. and she's an upholsterer. So then she might think about covering it in the way she wanted. And she said now on this show, she thinks well, actually, I want this piece of furniture. How can I go about building it? So it is enormously inspirational to people about, you know, have a go or see if you can work out how they did it and try it yourself. Yeah, and she's an incredibly inspiring story on many levels. I mean, this is the first time she's designed a room on her own. And I thought, my goodness, what an incredible learning curve you've been on because as an upholsterer she's always worked on pieces in isolation and it's obviously very different isn't it when you're putting a whole concept for a whole room together and so to follow her journey and see I mean she literally is like a rabbit in the headlights every week (laughs) but you know you know that would be me hey you should enter they're looking for contestants for series three oh I'm gonna put your name on an email (laughs) I couldn't do it I couldn't do it. I don't know one end of a staple gun from another. I mean, I could very good at floating in and going, I want somebody to paint that wall green and I want somebody to wallpaper that with that and now I'll just go and have a little lie down and when I come back, I'll get it all moved around again. But I I mean, I, you know, I'm full of admiration because they they do have to get down and dirty with it, don't they? they? They're all very handy with their power tools and the staple guns and the glue guns. Well, I know. And again, I mean, I think it's wonderful. You know, you've got wonderful Paul, who's, you know, Mr. Wallpaper. And I think he was absolutely that person. He loves standing around telling everybody what to do. And on this show, he's like, oh, oh my God, I'm wallpapering, I'm painting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's having to learn all these DIY skills. And then, you know, Lindsay this week was tiling and he's looking at her and going, oh my gosh, have I got to learn tiling next? Will this ever end? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can catch up with the next episode. It's going out on the BBC at the moment, Tuesdays at eight o'clock, or of course, you can always catch it on iPlayer. And just to say for everybody who's asked, I've got no idea if and when Netflix will be putting this out to our international audience, but of course, you'll be the first to find out if they do. You can, of course, follow all the contestants on Instagram, where you will also find Kate and I hanging out. She's mad about the house, and I'm Sophie Robinson Interiors. And as well as following us, do join the fabulously supportive and creative community that is the Great Indoors Facebook group. I popped on there recently, and it's so heartwarming. Hannah Hobson says, To the people on here who said, Go on, get the mad coal and sun leopard wallpaper, Thank you, I did, and I love it. And she's quite right too, it looks absolutely amazing in the pic. And Georgina Alice has a plan to paint her garden walls cobalt blue in the manner of the artist Frida Kahlo, which is just a sensational idea. And everyone is helping her out with masonry paint recommendations. And finally, Susie Cocker says, I know this is a ridiculously sad thing to say, But is it okay for a coat cupboard to fill your heart with joy? Susie has wallpapered the inside of her coat cupboard and judging by the accompanying pic, I can only agree with all the other comments saying it is so joyful and go ahead and feel the joy. And by the way, nice choice of wallpaper, Susie. It's the same same, uh, design as my kitchen, just a different colourway. Natch. Now... 
Drew Pritchard is an antiques dealer, an expert in architectural antiques and antique restoration, and the star of TV's Salvage Hunters. But frankly, it's just easier to call him what the press tends to, which is a junkyard genius. His father was a sign writer, and he says, It was my father who taught me how to look at things. Even as a young child, I couldn't understand why people would buy new things. I used to think, are you mad? Why not buy something old? His clients nowadays include Ralph Lauren and chef Marco Pierre White, and he has just designed a range of sofas and chairs for Barker and Stonehouse. Drew, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. I know you're very busy at the moment recording new TV shows. I suppose, do we call you junk for short or Mr. Genius? (laughs) Well, I'm definitely not a genius, that's for sure. And I suppose it's quite unkind calling it junk. I think there are things that I find and, and buy are really rather beautiful. But a lot of the time it's why I'm able to buy them because they've been discarded. Unfortunately, that doesn't work all of the time. I mean, today I think I've spent so – what time is it now? It's quarter past one. I've spent £15,500 so far today on buying. What so, have you bought? I have bought a 19th century Irish mirror. I've bought an 18th century English Cuban mahogany card table. I've bought an 18th century armchair. I've bought a late 19th century Howard and Sons Pembroke table, I have bought, it goes on. How it's just fabulous. on and on and on, yeah. When it comes to, as you said at the beginning, you know, let's not call it junk. There was a period of time where, you know, one might sort of go to the junk shop and be able to pick up a hidden treasure that no one else had spotted. And then it became sort of unfashionable to call it junk and everybody, you know, rebranded themselves as vintage shops or antique yeah. shops. Is it still possible to pick up, you know, one man's junk is another man's treasure? Or is everybody a bit too savvy? Yes, is the resounding answer to that. And I always say at every car boot sale, every junk shop, every salvage yard, every antique fair, there's one gem, something that is remarkable, that isn't where it should be, that has been lost, that has, you know, suddenly worth nothing and in the hands of somebody who doesn't understand it, then it becomes junk. It isn't junk. But also remember that Chippendale was junk for a while. Everything goes in its cycle. So it's new and exciting, and then it becomes secondhand, then it becomes unfashionable, then it becomes unwanted, then it becomes junk. Then it waits, and it sits there waiting for the right time to become an antique, right? So strictly after 100 years. Just because an antique doesn't mean it's desirable, then it becomes desirable. And that's the bit that you can't, never can put a finger on. Why is that thing desirable? Generally, it's because of form and quality. Those the two things. And then I like the form, the quality, and the history. And then patination, wear, colour. And bringing back into that moment of, you say, of fashion or desirability, I mean, for the last sort of 20 years or so, the so-called brown furniture, by which I mean sort of classic antiques, has fallen very out of fashion. But it's now coming back, isn't it? And Being very, very honest with you, it's coming back because people like myself are pushing it. I've never stopped buying it. Brown furniture was a derogatory term coined by people who don't know what they're talking about, unfortunately. Sorry to be harsh about this, but it's it was when in the 80s and early 90s they were sending 40-foot shipping containers of brown furniture over to America, right? So the Americans very cleverly in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s bought all of the best antiques in this country and kept them. What did we have left? 
right? A load of old tut, which ended up after was from the Second World War. So Edwardian to end of the Second World War into the late 1940s, right? So that was not a great period for a lot of, for the majority of furniture that we were making. And that is what was disparagingly called brown furniture. Not And not too unkindly, but along with that, they tarred everything that was old and brown with it, right? Including, and this is where the no knowledge comes in, including 18th century English furniture and early 19th century English furniture. But this is the bit that I find brilliant and really annoying because for the last 200, 250 years, we have made, without doubt, the finest furniture on the planet that's ever been. And people who didn't know called it brown furniture. And the people who knew bought it. I very much have a bee in my bonnet about this because it's been hijacked by people calling it that and then latterly by people calling it vintage and painting it in awful colours. There's so much to come into there. What makes it so good? Why were we as a nation good at it? Was it good training or? It was the absolute quality and it was the journeyman training and it was people coming back from the Grand Tour with perfect replicas and drawings and paintings of the architectural styles of the Greek. And then obviously the Romans nicked everything off the Greeks. We then nicked it off them. We called it neoclassical. So in the 18th century, you had people like Robert Adam and Thomas Chippendale championing this stuff and creating without doubt the finest furniture known to man with the finest woods. Because remember, we owned large parts of the tropics and East Indies where all of these exotic hardwoods came from. And bar the odd war and spat with the Spanish and the French, we were able to keep importing this stuff, mainly via Ireland, where the finest, finest furniture comes from. Do you find it difficult to part with these pieces or do you find your own house is quite full? (laughs) (laughs) If somebody walked in here and offered me a price on everything in the house, I'd sell it. Really? I'd start again. I think that the hunt is very much for me, the finding it, recognising it, doing a deal, getting it back, treating it correctly, and that's me done. The selling just gives me the money to continue. Talking to a dealer friend of mine last night, and he said, oh, I've just done, it's into the third month of the year, and he just turned over a million this year so far. And I said, have you taken any money? No, just buy it. He said, I just spend everything again. And I totally understand. It is a passion. Your business allows you to indulge your passion. You are not doing this for the business. Utterly. Yeah. Utterly. Don't tell anybody it's a secret. (laughs) And can you remember, I mean, there must have been so many pieces, but are there one or two pieces that stand out for you in a career of spotting brilliant pieces? So many. Um, I found a hatchment panel, a 17th century hatchment panel of the Prince of Wales. And then when it turned into the King of England, they just flipped the hatchment panel over and painted the King of England on the other side. And this was such an astonishingly rare thing. And I found it in a little antique shop in the Midlands in bits, and they'd shoved it underneath the table in bits. And then I bought, while filming Salvage Hunters, actually, I bought a table that was in a girls' private school near Walsall. And in the outside of the toilets, they had a table used to stack toilet rolls on. And it was by a guy called Burgess from the latter quarters of the 19th century. And Howard and Sons Furniture, I've actually got 10 pieces of Howard and Sons Furniture at the upholsterers now. All amazing things, but they're sort of blurred out by the next one, you know? Uh, it's just, hang on, somebody's, uh, my, my restorer, Mr. Measures, is ringing me. Oh, 
There you go. I'll have to stop. I'll have to ring him back. Um, that's a great name for a store, isn't it? He's Mr. Measures. That's the brilliant name, store. yeah. That's a real <laughs> name. Isn't that great? Um, what was I talking about? Um, we're not used to it. We've been trained like little lab rats that go to Ikea and buy this thing. And it's great because it's yellow and aren't they shiny, lovely people and they give you meatballs and, you know, oh, isn't it great? And it's comfortable for five minutes and it's instantly worth nothing. Whereas you can go and buy yourself a chair at any antique shop or salvage yard or antiques fair or online platform for the same price or less that will be better that will last you the rest of your life and is interesting and is green and is you know reuse is the key recycling's all right but reuse is the key have you got any advice for people who take on board the notion of as you say reuse and prolonging life and expert craftsmanship well you don't it doesn't have to be expert craftsmanship one of the most comfortable chairs you'll ever buy is a, is a chair called the smoker's bow and you can buy one for about 45 quid and they get better with age as well they're just wonderful things don't be afraid of it you are starting down a journey we as i said we've been trained as a worldwide to buy new because that's the good thing that keeps everything going right buy new buy new go there go in the big horrid building and be like a lab rat and wander around it and buy what you're told and put it in your house and all of this, you just have to break the cycle and think, you know what, I don't want that, actually. I'm gonna, I want something that's got a bit of soul to it. I want something that means something to somebody. If you buy something old and put it in your house, there's a story attached. Oh, me and my partner went out in the car and we found this. We met this guy. We looked at 20 chairs, but this one, and we only paid this for it. The love affair starts. And you've just got to start with that one piece. Just start with one. Make sure you love it. If there's something wrong with it, don't worry about it. But the journey then of finding somebody to restore it for you, that's another fun thing to do as well. The journey of finding an electrician. Here's a great tip. If you go and buy some old lights, right, and you go, I don't know a lighting restorer, right? You don't have to. Do you know these blokes on the high street that fix your microwave and your telly and your dishwasher, right? Take it to them. Yeah, lighting is three wires, okay? It's three wires. It's no mystery to it. Just make sure all the bits are there if you can, and it's nice and clean. You know, And so if you're going to a market, an antique market or fair, any sort of key bits of advice you would give to people to know that either they're not making an expensive mistake or they're not being ripped off or they might know something good? That's a really tricky one because that's a really tricky one. But I can give you the basics of going to a fair. I stood the Newark fair for 13 years, every single fair. Number one, get there early. And I mean really early. Get there before the people are out of their vans. We're up at 4.30, 5.30 in the morning emptying the vans out, right? You need to be there then trying to get in. Even if you can't get in, pay to get in at the back of the van. Bribe somebody, get in early, right? Number two, take measurements with you of the thing that you're looking for and take a tape measure with you and a pen and paper with you. Take cash, take a credit card, and take a checkbook, right? Take all of those things with you. Wear warm clothes. Don't be a tourist. You see these ladies turning up, particularly at Arding Live, they turn up about nine o'clock, silly cowboy hat, expensive dry as a bone coat, hunter wellies. Everything's gone four hours ago, love. It's gone. You know, it's get there early. Don't be a tourist. But number one, be polite, right? I've been up. All the previous day, loading the van, I've then driven said crappy, filthy van across the country, slept in it overnight. Then you get up, I'm trying to give you something for 50 quid, and you're offering me 25 quid. Don't do it, right? Give the people their money. If Just say, is that the best price you can do? 
that's fine. But people use that now because they've seen all these dreadful programs on television during the day about beating people down at antique fairs. Don't do that because the next time they won't be there for you to beat down and make the money, you know, to take stuff off. Give them their money. If you think it's worth it, when you get it home, you still won't believe how cheap it was. If you see something at somebody's stand, go up to it, put your hand on it, right? Because if your hand's on it, it's a little bit trickier for somebody else to buy it. And say to the person, how much is it? It's £200, right? Just say to them, if you want a little bit of a deal and you definitely want to buy it, right? Because there's nothing worse when people ask the price, beat you down and then say they don't want it. Say to the person, I really love this thing. I love it. I'll pay you today. I'll take it away now. How much is it? And smile. And I guarantee you will get the best price off that dealer. Drew, we've spoken a lot about, you know, your passion for old furniture, but also how you do have some, you know, modern styles in your house. Are there any sort of furniture trends that you really don't like? Well, the word trends immediately gets my hackles up because I don't deal in trends. I'm not interested in trends. I'm not interested in fashion, to be perfectly honest. I'm interested in style and taste. I absolutely detest, detest with every fibre of my being, the painted furniture brigade. You know, going off and buying a piece of very dreary Edwardian sideboard that nobody wants anyway for 40 quid, spending £200 on overpriced chalky paint, then painting it badly, and then all of a sudden you're a vintage painting expert. You know, you've just taken something that was worthless and made it worth even less. It's an embarrassment to this country that we do this. It's absolutely awful. I I put it up there with stone cladding your house, with pebble dashing, with wearing football shirts in public, with gold cars. All of these things are, you know, we're laughing at you and it's just awful and it's thoughtless and it's it's as nonsensical and as dull as the person buying it. And if I get shouted down by people for saying, well, I like shabby chic furniture, just by saying the word shabby chic, I don't want to talk to you. I'm slightly frightened to play devil's advocate, but here goes. Go I am hiding under a duvet, so I might be safe from you throwing things at me. <sighs> <laughs> if if somebody has bought, in your words, a worthless piece of furniture yeah. that nobody wanted and by painting it, they like it and although it might technically be worth less but it makes them happy and they want it, is that not okay? Um, I'd love to be right on and politically correct about this, but no, it's not okay because what you've done is you've vandalised your environment you've put something tasteless and cheap and nasty. And even if it wasn't, you've made it that way into your environment and you're not learning from it and you're not gaining from it. And it will very quickly go out of this small little phase that it's in now and all of a sudden then be just be something worthless. So you've also wasted your money. When you can go out and buy something really rather beautiful because all the people that do it, I have to say to them, you're not a furniture designer. You're not a furniture painter. Just by buying overpriced paint doesn't make you an expert, Right. Look at it and take it for what it is, right? The only person getting anything out of this is the person selling the paint. If it makes you happy, fine. But as I said, you know, stone cladding was in for a while, wasn't it? Thank you so much, Drew, for sharing your time with us. That's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Slew of hate mail now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, what an insightful interview. However, I am going to have to take a stand around the painted furniture argument because I think it is a wonderful way to breathe new life into unloved furniture. But you've got to think about which piece of furniture you're picking, right? And if it is a lovely piece of rosewood or it's got a beautiful piece of patina, if you're not loving it, just pass it on to someone who does. But it might just be something that's a bit of Victorian pine, nothing special, even if it's something it's a bit damaged and you can piece it back together with a bit of TLC and then paint over the cracks and the distresses with a lovely bonnie new colour. I say, I say paint away, Drew Pritchard. There you go. I say, I say, let's have him back on the show and Drew and Sophie can <laughs> duke it out at dawn together. Celebrity death match. <laughs> I'm, not sh- I'm not sure I'm on for taking on Drew Pritchard. <laughs> And now for our listeners' star surgery. And this dilemma has been sent in by Louisa. Hi, Kate and Sophie. I could do with your advice. My partner and I are looking to buy our first ever home. Yay. But here's our problem. We don't own any furniture of our own. Between renting landlord-furnished flats and living with parents while saving money, we have never had the chance to decorate our own home before. I like the idea of slow-grown, carefully considered spaces, but we'll need to strike a balance between that and a time-sensitive need for a livable space. We're going to need the basics, without delay. Things like a bed, a table and chairs, a sofa. Basically, what I'm asking is, how would you approach a totally blank canvas? Thank you. It's interesting, isn't it? That comes back in a way to Drew's point about, you know, it's very tempting to just rush off and buy a whole load of flat pack furniture and throw it up and and that'll do. But that said, we all know people who've said, oh, I bought that flat pack table 10 years ago and I'm still using it. Um, so like almost what you're saying is the danger is if you do that, you'll still be living with flat yeah. pack furniture 10 years later. Exactly. Making do. Um, but, you know, it's also true that we don't necessarily have an idea of what we want when we move in. And for everyone who rushes off to sort of buy lots of affordable furniture in one go, there'll be someone else who say, oh, we've got to live in it for six months and see how the light travels across the ceiling. And, <laughs> you know, actually just want to sit down on something that's not the floor. So you've got to find your way between those two things. When we moved in here, which was two rental flats, so obviously we needed to convert it back into one house, we had to spend a lot of boring money on doors and windows. So, you know, that soaked up Mm. quite a lot of it. So we just painted it all in a kind of soft, chalky white and used lots of secondhand furniture. You know, we went to junk shops and car boot sales And so we had the essentials and that then, if you like, we sort of bought ourselves a bit of time to think about what we really wanted to do with the space. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea, buying secondhand furniture. I did exactly the same thing as well. And I have to admit, some of it I still own. I've even painted some of it, actually. There you go. How about that? Uh, And I liked it so much, I decided to keep it. But yeah, (laughs) if you buy um, secondhand furniture, and I'm not talking like your designer Urkel pieces or, you know, your Wassily chairs or whatever. I'm talking about just good old junk shop furniture. You know, the kitchen table that you can get for 15 quid. The thing is, is when you then come to, save or purchase what you really want it's really easy to put that back into the cycle take it back to the charity shop and someone else can take it on the thing about cheap flat pack furniture is it's more than likely going to end up in landfill and we really want to avoid that 
Actually, talking about flatback furniture, though, IKEA have now set up a programme trying to create a more circular economy. They will buy back, actually, your old furniture and they'll give you a price on it depending on the condition it's in and you agree that and then you take the furniture back to them. They've already given you an estimate online. Take it back to the store you want to go to. They have a look at it and then they give you an IKEA refund card so that you can buy some newer furniture or something you like more. Some tea lights. And then they resell the old stuff to a new home. So they're, they're sort of trying to make that more circular. Which is oh you know. well, that's inca- yeah, that's excellent. Essentially, though, we're talking about short term. What can you do in the short term? As in, you say you don't have to eat your takeaway on the floor. You've got something to sit on. But essentially, what you really need to get on with sooner rather than later is a plan. You've got to have a plan for the longer term as well. Even if you know you can't implement them all at once, having a vision for where you're taking your design was going to help you stop making lots of expensive mistakes or having to take stuff back to Ikea. So sitting on my desk, hot <laughs> off the press... Can we do oh, a drum roll? Yeah, do a drum roll. We do a drum roll. <laughs> I've got Mad About the House... Latest new book, Planner, Your Home, Your Story. And it's kind of like a workbook, Kate, specifically designed for people like Louisa or anybody, I suppose, who's perhaps moving house or even moving into a rental or probably less. Your other books are more geared to people rejudging what they're already in. But this is a start. I mean, I just love, love, love the first sort of few pages. You've even got a um, a checklist for all the things you need to do when you're moving house, this is so you. This is all the stuff that I would never remember. Update your driving <laughs> licence and organise the parking permits. Update your magazine and newspaper subscriptions. Are your insurance details up to date? And so it goes on. I mean, it's just so organised. It's, it's like very granular. Very granular. <laughs> I like a list. But you know yes, where you this idea came from is that... You know, I love a notebook and I love stationery. And whenever I move house, I mean, even as a student, if I was moving rental bedrooms and shared houses, there'd always be a list of what I needed to do, what I wanted to bring in, you know, what colour bedspread I wanted if I couldn't change anything else. And you inevitably lose that list or you write down the name of a really good plumber on a bit of paper and you tuck it in your purse and then it falls out and you haven't got it or in my case you then I want to make a floor plan so I can plan out you know how much space I've got around the bed so how big the bedside table can be or whatever and you know there isn't the right paper in that notebook so then you have to buy a different book and either oh and you know the the one that really stuck out for me there was one that really stuck out for me you said oh uh, I think you've got a page where people can write down all their paints that they've painted their house in (gasps) so clever nothing more annoying than five years down the line thinking oh I need to do a a rejuge on my skirting boards in my living room what paint colour was it (laughs) you can't remember you can write your paint and the other one that actually I never do. So the idea was that instead of having all these little lists in several different places, you could bring it all together in one book. So there's lined pages, blank pages, graph paper. But the paint, Mm. to come back to the paint, one of the things I discovered when we spoke in a previous episode about me having to test about 20 different pinks to find the right one from my bedroom. And then when I went to paint my office, I didn't write down the names of any of the paints I'd tested. And so I didn't have them. So I had to start again. But it's more than just a place to write lists. It is a place that sort of methodically takes you through a process. And I think this is the problem that Louise is facing at the moment. This just, she's in total overwhelm. 
and, you know, money's tight and there's all these rooms and where do you start? And I think what's really nice is you're sharing also how you, you know, what order you go through doing things? You know, where do you indeed start? Yes. Yeah, so I wanted it to be methodical and helpful. And that comes back to, to the idea I first kind of came up with in the last book, the green one, about the six questions you should ask before you start any kind of... So what are the, what are the six questions Louisa needs so to ask? So the six questions, who, what, when, where, how and why. So, you know, who is using the room? And you need to make a list because a couple with toddlers need a different room from a couple of teenagers or a couple of downsizers. So, you know, be really clear about who's using that space and what they are doing in there. So are they playing? Are they doing school? Are they having meetings? Are they watching telly? You know, and don't be frightened if your room has to do four or five different functions, because that's what most of us have. But make sure you've written them all down so that you're aware. And, you know, you're, you buy that fabulous sofa, which is absolutely great for lying on the sofa and eating popcorn and watching telly, but doesn't work at all if you're having a conversation with somebody or a Zoom meeting or whatever. So you, if you write down everything you've got to do, you then know what you're looking for. So, so is that like one of the first things you do? And I then think from it's there, absolutely the first thing because that one. then plays into, you know, if you write down when, is it daytime, is it nighttime, is it both? That helps you choose your paint colours and also make a lighting plan because when are you going to be in there? You know, what sort of lighting do you need for the jobs you are doing? So do you need a task light? Do you just want some ambient light? I know it's all really boring, isn't it? Because I think everybody wants to go skipping off to the paint chart, don't they? Because of all the fun creative yeah, yeah. bits. But actually, it is the bones, isn't it? It's the layer. But I, are the electrics I like in the that. right place? The plug sockets. Oh, you like that with the well, plug I sockets like, in the I right like, place? I like the list of knowing what I'm doing. And, you know, I've left, there's places throughout the book in each room for you to write that down. But what I've also done is left a space for each room, for, which is for my interiors version of... Kiss, Marry, Kill. Oh, right. Or is it Shag, Marry, Avoid? Whatever that, that game yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've called it Loved, Lust, Loathe. And that idea is, that's the kind of journal bit. So write down what it is you love about a room, what, you know, why you love that house and bought it or why you love that room and you want that to be your bedroom as opposed to a different room. If you love the way the sun comes through the window and hits that spot of floor at three o'clock in the afternoon, make a note of that so you don't build a cupboard on top of it. And then also write down a list of what you loathe because that's your kind of to-do list. Right. And you will, you know, you forget what you've, all the things you went through to get to the lovely space. So it's kind of mixed diary, mixed to-do list. And then what you lust after is your sort of aspiration for the space. So, and that is so personal to everybody. So maybe you want to only buy from small made in the UK businesses. Maybe you only want to buy sustainable. Maybe, you know, you want to create a feeling that makes it look like a Margate beach hut to return to an earlier topic. So that, so this is a real <laughs> mix of kind of bullet journal and diary, but also practical note-taking and list-making. Okay, so that's great. So that's all the nitty-gritty, isn't it? Get your layouts, get your lighting, live in the space. Where does the light fall? I'm loving all the journaling. Whether I'm ever going to do it or not, I'm not so sure because I'm terrible. Well, I'm not going to move board, let's be honest. But there's, there's, there's a book. There's a book now to help me do it. I think, the, for me, I think lists are, lists are brilliant on a practical front and ticking off. But for me, one of the most powerful things to help you get a vision 
for your home is to start using images and mood boarding. So I, and I would do that way before the paint chart too. It's like we've yeah. got to snatch away those paint charts. People just like grab them way too quick and it can all get a bit disastrous. So actually then getting some, you know, once you've got the practicals of the who, what, where, why, how, something how you want to feel in the space and what is your personal style? What is your look? This is a whole other area that I think really deserves to have some dedicated time and not rush into, not just go, oh, I'm Scandi minimal because that's what I'm seeing everywhere in the media at the moment. Do a bit more digging and work out what is your relationship with colour and design. And yeah, you know, that could be Pinterest. We all have a bit of Pinterest, but if you can print them off and stick them on the wall where you can see them. Because I really believe that when you start bringing images out where you can see them in the 3D world rather than digitally, magic things start happening. Like you really start to crystallise your vision. You start to get real clarity. You start to feel it in your gut. And then you can start pulling out those colours that you love to go with it. I would say there's, you know, the chances are you've got the paint charts and you've been fanning through them for weeks on end while you wait for (laughs) exchange and completion or for your deposit to go through or whatever it is. I mean, I get it. So there's nothing wrong with having that as a starting point. You know, as Sophie would say, pin that favourite colour to the wall, but then expand it outwards and start looking at material and building it up into different textures and magazine cutouts. I mean, I'm old school, so I'll be ripping up magazines rather than, you know, doing it digitally. But as you say, printing them out and just build it up from there. So we're not saying you can't choose the paint straight away, but what we're saying perhaps is don't you, I'm saying (laughs) you can have that paint in the back of your mind, but you can't slap it on the wall until you've done the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think another thing that's really nice about creating vision boards for your home is it keeps energy high because all too quickly we can start feeling really down in the dumps about, oh, the budget won't stretch or having the builders in the house is really stressful. There's dust everywhere and we can really lose our creative mojo really, really quickly. And I think that's when people start going, oh, I'm just going to paint it grey. Oh, I'm just going to do it beige. Oh, I've got absolutely no fuel left in the tank. I can't bear another decision. And that's when you're going to regret it a year later when you're looking at that beige wall just thinking, oh, that's just not doing it for me. So by doing mood boarding and vision boards, it doesn't cost you any money. You don't have to worry about making mistakes, but you can start flexing that creative muscle and enjoying the thrill of creating gorgeous interiors and then roll them out slowly over the next few years because very few people have enough money to just turnkey and make their home fabulous as soon as they move in. We slept on a mattress on the floor for years. You know, there's nothing to stop you. You know, spend the money on a really good mattress, which will last. If you have to have it on the floor because you don't know what style you want your bed, that's fine. But there's no reason why you can't have a beautiful, comfortable, pretty looking mattress on the floor while you get the you rest can put of it. it on a, put it on a couple of pallets. I think yeah, that's been I mean, you have not You haven't actually got to sleep on the floor. The chances are you have some sort of idea. You may not know what colours you want, but you probably know what you like. By the time you're moving into your first rented house or buying your first property, you kind of have an idea of what you like. You know, you know how to buy clothes, you know how to get dressed. You know whether that's a chair you like or a sofa you hate. So you've got already a starting point. So maybe don't fix on the colours, but look at the shapes and the styles because I reckon you've got an idea of that. So take a moment to sort of interrogate yourself think about it 
and then start. And hopefully if you're in any uh, luck, the kitchen isn't even usable at the moment. We've been lifted out of lockdown and you can just go to lots of fabulous restaurants for uh, inspiration. Always a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So we really do hope that was useful, Louisa. And for anyone else who would like to submit a design dilemma to our style surgery, please send us an email to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. It'd be awesome if it was a voice memo. And while we can't always promise to write a book on the topic, we will, of course, do everything we can to answer your questions. I'll put a link to the book on the blog, as well as more information on everything else we've talked about today. I'm at madaboutthehouse.com and she's sophierobinson.co.uk. And a big thanks today to Long Tall Ali, who left a review on her podcast app saying, among other nice things... Interior design seems scary before, but Sophie and Kate have removed that fear. Great work, ladies. Isn't that cheering to hear? Less fear and more cobalt blue masonry paint. Till next time, a big thanks to our producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective, and thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. Because we are kind of killing two eggs with one stone, but... Two eggs with oh, one smashing, stone. We're smashing eggs and stoning birds and We're making sh- omelettes and salads and <laughs> Got one in the hand, got a couple of eggs in the yeah. hand, there's a bird in my bush. That's it. <laughs>